All right. We are back once again in the book of Mark or the gospel of Mark. It's sometimes referred to, uh, but it's Mark's account of the doings, sayings and doings of Jesus when he was upon the earth more than 2,000 years ago. And Mark is using, he's the vehicle through which Peter, the live witness who saw these things firsthand, he communicated them to Mark to write them down. And so Mark is once again coming around and stressing something very important today. He's recently been focusing, remember if you've been here, on the theme of entrance into the kingdom of God. In other words, who gets in? Who gets left out? Everybody ain't going. The Bible makes that clear. So, who's in? Sounds like an an SC, uh, uh, playoff uh, series uh, uh, thing that ESPN throws up. Who's in? Well, not that kind of who's in, but that's what Mark has been focusing on. And he's told us some helps being childlike, remember, a few weeks ago, and some hindrances in the form of what? Riches. Loving, depending on, being confident in this as your Savior ultimately from all your fears and worries. So, now today though, there is literally a turn in what is going on. Jesus has been still hanging around the area of Galilee, but Jesus now has turned and headed south straight for Jerusalem. Our Savior has turned toward the destination for which he came into this world. Notice I said came. He wasn't just born. He came into it from another world because he has always been. But he came incarnate to show us, but to more than show us what we should do and be and the way we should treat one another. But to redeem us, to ransom us. Look at our scripture reading today with me from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed... And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, 
Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism of which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it was prepared. And the ten heard it, and they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. May God add the blessing to this, the reading of his holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we cannot see light without your light. We will not understand on our own. We bring much that blinds us our sin and our pride. Father, will you open our eyes and our ears to hear spiritual things today, to receive the engrafted word with meekness. And Father, by your grace and by your mercy and the redemptive work of Jesus, may it yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in us. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Here we go again. Another Ali-like call. I am the greatest. Well, at least in this case, we want to be the greatest. So said the sons of Zebedee, the disciples of Jesus, named James and John. You see, this is the third, get this, the third passion prediction that Jesus gives about what's going to happen to him and what he came for and how that's all going to go down in Jerusalem. This is the third prediction of Jesus' ultimate death at the hands of of the religious leaders 
And today we learn they have accomplices. We get more details. James and John make their request for the best seats in the kingdom. And yet this section that we just read is serving in some ways as the climax. The central section, or remember, hinge. Remember I talked about the mark and hinge. The hinge that holds both of the books together. That serves as the middle portion. The first is the miracles and the doings of Jesus. The second is about the mission of Jesus and the accomplishment of Jesus. And now we're about to swing into that third section of the book. That hinges chapter 8 verse 22 through chapter 10 verse 52. And we're getting really close to that. It also though, as I said, reveals the mission of Jesus as the servant Messiah. He's not just the king who gets to come in and have his way. He is the servant, the suffering servant. And here Jesus teaches his disciples then and now to you and me and to anyone who's listening what true greatness looks like. What true greatness really looks like. Now, here's the outline for today. Pretty simple. The prophecy, the power grab, and the pattern. The prophecy, the prediction of what's going to happen, the power grab by his, once again, dense disciples that don't have a clue what's going on really, despite him telling them over and over, and then the pattern that we are supposed to follow and provide for others, the, the, the way Jesus did. All right, the prophecy. That's verse 32 through 34, the first three verses that we read. Listen again to what Jesus prophesied. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what would happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, notice that Jesus is, as I said earlier, heading straight for Jerusalem. He's making a beeline for the holy city. Everything has been pointing to this. This is where everything is going to culminate. And now he has been telling, so far at this point in time, he's been generally in his ministry around the Galilee, regions slightly beyond, regions further north, some of the Gentile areas, but generally in the north. Now he's heading south. But now he is literally dragging his disciples behind him. He is so resolute, he is so doggedly determined to get to where the Father wants him to go that literally they're having trouble keeping up. They're even confused again and afraid. They see the determination in Jesus and he's out in front of the pack leading the way to the mission that the Father had given him to do. 
You see, Jesus doesn't leave any doubt about why he came. He tells us that right up front. Mark, again, for the third time. He came, what? To receive accolades? To to be given praise? No, he came to die. He came to die. As I've already mentioned, this is the third time of that prediction But as I said, there are more details here, significant. Let me mention just a couple of them to you. Um, There, one, there's a criminal trial going on. We didn't get all before. It was about the leaders of Judaism, the Pharisees and scribes. Those people, the Sanhedrin, they were going to have a role in Jesus' death. Now we get the understanding that This is going to also become a basically a criminal justice case. It's going to be tried officially. And it's going to be tried in a place where no Jew wanted to ever find himself. And that was in the hands of the dirty, nasty Gentiles. That's how the Jews saw them. And anything they would rather face than be in the hands of the Gentiles. And of all Gentile hands, the Romans were the most barbaric and the most horrible. They would say, spare me from that. And yet that's right where Jesus is walking into the teeth of. And the harsh treatment is is specified here, specifically it pointed out. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. Brutally, in the worst way that a human being could ever be put to death. The Romans were excellent at pain and torture. They had perfected it. So, this kind of specificity, this much detail, you know what it reveals? It reveals that despite the portrayals to the contrary, you've seen Jesus films in which you kind of got Jesus that's like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't well, what's happening? I, I don't know, but none of that. None of that. He knows exactly what's coming, but he chooses and embraces it and walks headlong into it with determination of its charging steed into battle. He knew precisely what emotional and physical and spiritual tortures awaited him in the holy city. And yet he pressed into the fray with resolute and unwavering determination. You know what? You know who he is? He's the true Braveheart. If you've seen Braveheart and you've seen how strong he was and what he faced, that ain't nothing compared to our Jesus There's the true brave heart. And there's what's amazing, brothers and sisters. He didn't do it because we were worth it. Quite the contrary. He did it because he loved us in spite of what we are. And he joyfully, joyfully went to that hell itself in order to bring us back to the Father. That is the gospel. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, 
for the joy set before him, despising the cross and rejecting the shame. Jesus delighted to give up his life for the likes of me and you. Sinners that have broken every law and every command and showed all kinds of selfishness, greed, and avarice. Serving ourselves. And yet he joyfully went into this for us. What manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God. By the way, he told them once again about his resurrection, but that went over their head like water off a duck's back. They were, once again, they're still so confused, and now they're even more confused. They didn't even hear that. But they would remember, because the opera ain't over yet. What about the power grab? That's the second part. It's verses 35 through 41. I'm not going to read that whole section again, but basically here's what's going on. You know, we really shouldn't be surprised at the disciples considering their history up until this point. It's not really a... Uh, something you got to think hard about or wonder, well, how in the world did those guys end up going for such a power grab? I mean, after all, Jesus has already told them several times, that's not the way of the kingdom. But that's exactly what they do. Here, Jesus has told them all this stuff about him and what he's going to do for them and for us who are his. And they try to pull a power grab. Unbelievable. Just, what what were they thinking? What would cause disciples of Jesus to act like that? Probably some of the same things that cause disciples of Jesus today to act like that. Maneuvering for themselves because they're really not trusting God. They're trusting their own works or their own accomplishments or their own setup. Your own little piece of security. These guys were no different. (laughs) Think about it. Shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because James and John were already in Jesus' what? Inner circle. Remember? They had got to go up with the king to the mountaintop. Them and Peter. And Peter, remember, already they had seen him cash in. And be told that he was going to be the keeper of the keys. And that he was going to be a rock upon which Jesus would build. So Peter was already lifted up and esteemed. And they're sitting there thinking, we're the other two of the big three. Where's our piece of the pie? Furthermore, they didn't get their nicknames the Sons of Thunder for nothing. (laughs) These guys had volatile and aggressive personalities. Isn't that amazing that John, we know in the, in the books of John, that loving disciple shows you hope again for us all. 
But what, you are, already he's been rebuked by Jesus for trying to shut down the guy that was exercising demons in Jesus' name. John was at the forefront of that. He's an aggressive, angry, volatile man. So these guys decided to jump on it. Take it. This world goes to the strong and to the power. The weak get crushed and trampled. Babylon and the Potomac up there. For those of you who don't know, that's Washington, D.C. That place reeks of people that are there for their power. And they'll sell anything for it. Both sides of the aisle. Don't get me going on that. <laughs> and, and then beyond what they've already done, the reasons why we shouldn't be surprised at what they did, here's the, here's the icing on the cake. To take the cake, they got mama involved. If you look at Matthew's account, listen, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And specifically, when he said, what do you want? She said, uh, say that these two sons of mine are to sit at your right hand and one at the other in your kingdom. They didn't even have the guts to go direct. They get their mama involved. Good grief. By the way, prob quite possibly... She was Jesus' aunt. That's what we say in the South. Some of you would say aunt. But uh, anyway, that, it's quite possible that she is. So in, the, so in other words, cousin, relatives, you know, thick blood, relatives. So these could have been some of the reasons for their surprising, crazy move to try to grab power. Now, Jesus was not about to sign their blank check. That's what they wanted. That's what mama wanted. That's what they wanted. But he went about to sign that check, but he does ask them a question. What do you want? What are you looking for? He knows they have no idea what they are asking, but he says, hey, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And, and of course, and then he says, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And they go, yeah, Jesus, we got it. Yeah, we're there. We're going we're to hang with you. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you see, drinking a cup was with someone else speaks of sharing. It speaks of sharing in a person's fate. So if you drink with a person and share the cup, you are saying, I'm willing to share the same fate with you, whatever it may be. The sharing of a person's fate and experiencing their destiny or destination. Furthermore, drinking a cup, and there's plenty of Old Testament imagery. It's frightening. It is scary imagery. Drinking a cup also was a common picture of the wrath of God in judgment. Let me just give you one example. 
Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain its dregs. Ultimate utter destruction and judgment. Jesus is saying, you guys up for that? And of course, they're not getting it again. Then Jesus implied something they really didn't want to know, and they sure didn't get until much later. And that was what? You are going to share that cup with me, by the way, but not the way you think. You think you're going to get to share, be on my right hand and my left You're going to share, all right, but you're going to share in my sufferings. Jesus told us that multiple times. He told them that's part of what happens when you're a servant to others. There's always a price to be paid. See, Jesus told them they would share the cup, but not as they had in mind. They were ordained by his purpose for a similar destiny. What happened to James? Read Acts chapter 12, the first martyr. He was killed for the faith. He was persecuted for the faith, and he died for the faith. John, he didn't die. He was the only one that didn't of the disciples, but he was often brutally treated. He was exiled, thrown into a cave on an isle for years and years and years. They did share in the sufferings of Jesus, but it didn't stop them because of what had happened. You see, these two guys, but at this point in time, as of right now, these two guys embraced what is sometimes called the theology of glory. That means I want my theology to be full of me getting everything I deserve and it's glorious and wonderful and I'm on top, I'm at the top of the pile. We're playing king in the mountain and me and John are right beside Jesus on the top. That's what they wanted. But Jesus was setting before them here and again and again and he will even more as we get on further into the text, the theology of the cross the theology of suffering. Listen to this quote by R.C. Sproul, the late, great R.C. Sproul. I've been quoting from him fairly frequently lately, Um, but, but this is really good. Sproul says, when I read this text, I cannot help but think of the pagan philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who said in the 19th century that what distinguishes man from the animals is not our ability to think, but our will to power. To drive, the drive within every human being to conquer, to climb the ladder over others, to reach the highest place of exaltation. Some theologians have argued that sin is simply virtue run amok. Because God plants in the heart of every creature an aspiration for significance. 
But, Sproul says, we bend that good aspiration into a desire to dominate others. That seems to be what motivated James and John. That, I'm going to stay on top, whatever it takes. It's about me, me first, me always, and me on top. Now, how do you think the the other ten disciples were feeling about now? (laughs) When the other ten realized what James and John were up to, they were very concerned that, that... Jesus was being taken advantage of. No, they were livid. They were absolutely white hot, smoking mad. Why? Because they got beaten to the punch. (laughs) They got outfoxed. They weren't the early bird getting the worm. Their lust for greatness had been well documented, remember? Listen again. Mark 9, 33. And when they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. No, it's me. No, 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 it's me. No, guys, it's me. I'm it. You know, that's how... These guys were were becoming past masters at it. Finally, a pattern in verses 42 through 45. Listen again. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many now there's the pattern that we're supposed to follow by earthly standards self-promotion And dominating others feels what? Natural. It feels right. (laughs) Our sinful hearts are just bent and twisted that way. You don't have to teach a kid how to be selfish. They come about it quite naturally. Their old sin nature of Adam and Eve just keep sprouting. But to get them to be sacrificial, and serving others, and putting others before them, and preferring others, and preferential, that takes the grace of God. And that God has come in Jesus Christ to show us the way how to do it. You see, Jesus says, those rules don't apply. Not in my house. Not now, not ever. We do it differently. We march to a different drummer. In his world, the more important you are, the more people you are to serve. 
If you really are a big wig, a big guy or a big gal, then you've got a lot of people you need to be serving. A lot of people you need to be deferring to. You need to be helping. You see, that's how Jesus defines things in his upside-down kingdom. Oh, it's not really upside-down. It's right-side-up. It just looks upside-down to us here. Because it just goes against and blows all the other things that human beings naturally know and want. Jesus reverses all the ideas of true greatness. And he turns the world's philosophy and its practices on their head. He says, you want to be first? You want to be really important? Let me see how much you love one another. I'm going to show you how much I love you, and then I want you to go out and replicate it, pay it forward. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, our Lord's instructions on spiritual greatness reaches its climax in verse 45. I read it, but let me read this again. This is so key. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, although he had every right to be, and he will be, and he is king, but he came now not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's the key to the key verse in Mark's whole book of the gospel. 10.45, that's the key verse. It's the climax. And it tells us the ultimate reason Jesus came to this earth. Invaded this planet from his father's home in glory. Jesus has told us that he will die. He told them that he would die in Jerusalem. Now he tells them why. Jesus makes a promise. Listen, this is what's amazing. Jesus is making a promise here in what I just read that no other religious leader in the world has ever made nor ever could possibly make. Because there's no other religious leader on this planet ever has been or ever will be that can die for your sins as the God-man and take away your sins so that you do not have to face the Father afraid because Jesus is with you and he's saying he's with me, Father. She's with me. That is only what Jesus can give. And you see, he came to serve, yes, but this the gospel is so much more than that. He didn't just come to give us an example. He did. But if that's where you stop, it ultimately goes the other way. It's all about you trying to get something from God, but when you realize that he didn't just set an example, he came to ransom us, to buy us back into the favor of the Father which we had thrown away in our sinfulness and Adam and Eve and our constant ratification of it a thousand, a thousand times over in our lives. And yet he came not only as a serving example, but a serving Savior to ransom us. Listen to 1 Corinthians seven twenty three. 
For even the Son of Man, excuse me, you, he said, were bought with a price. That ransom, that word ransom, that's buying back someone that has been sold into slavery. And Jesus said, I came to pay the price to buy you back and to bring you home as my son, my daughter, and show you with joy to my father. What a gospel is this? How can you not believe this? Why would you ever believe anything else? And if you are hoping anything, drop it now. Lay your deadly doings down. Crush them before your feet. There is no other gospel. There is no other Savior but Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other hope. We who were hopelessly in debt to God are now not required to pay the ransom. The ransom has been paid by the suffering servant of Israel, Jesus, the Messiah. Has he paid your ransom? Why he did mine, I don't know, but I thank God that he did. And I know I can face my judge and make her unafraid. Because not of what I do. I can't, an example isn't enough. I needed a ransom. I needed a savior. And there's only one. And his name is Jesus. Now, because of that, because that's true. In grateful response to the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. Just what will this gospel make of you and me? If that's true, everything I've been saying recently is true, then what now must you and I do? What now should we do? How should we respond to such grace, to such forgiveness, to such mercy? What will the gospel make of us? How will we treat others? Will we keep trying to climb over them to get to the top? By the way, in this crazy time that we're living in of COVID, what does this have to say? If Jesus did that, what should we be doing? We should be serving one another. We should be preferring one another. Oh, I know we all have very, very strong opinions about many things. And we sometimes end up being on the opposite side and shouting at one another. If not literally, we do it in our hearts. And we grow smug in our confidence of our position is the right one on this matter. But what is Jesus calling us to do? What is the gospel calling us to do? To find ways to listen more, to serve, to try to see through others' eyes. But by all means, in whatever we do, even if we end up not agreeing, we do so with love. We recognize this is another image bearer of God and I am not superior 
That's what leads to racism and to all other kinds of prejudice and hatred. It's superiority. We think we're better than somebody else. Jesus is calling us, lay down. Lay down. Serve. Give. Defer. Prefer others over you. This has legion implications. But my friends, true greatness is found in servanthood to him and to each other and to those God brings in our path. How are we doing on that? Let's pray. Father, Oh, help us. You know we're far, far from the servants, the humble servants that we should be. Thank you, Jesus, that you have had every right to lord it over us, but you didn't. You came, and you, Lord, redeemed us and ransomed us, and you provided a pattern for us to follow. But without your help and without your Holy Spirit, we cannot do that. We are too selfish. We are too arrogant, too proud. Only you can change that and make us gentle as Jesus, wise in our ways, and by all means, show us how to love one another better. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.